Well, we're in this series called Emmanuel Unwrapped. We've taken this name of Jesus, one of, this, uh, one of the most beloved names of Jesus that we talk about over the Christmas season, and we've taken it in its parts. Emmanuel means God with us. And so two weeks ago, we looked at the idea of God. What, who was it that Mary expected when she heard that God was coming? When Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon, when they uh, experienced the idea of God coming to be among them, what was their perception as Old Testament Jews who understood the scriptures? Uh, what was it that they were expecting when God came? And so after that, we looked last week when Alex was here with us at the idea of with. He took us to the end of the story in Revelation chapter 21 uh, and the idea of the dwelling place of God being with man and this uh, invitation that we've been given to God to come to be with us and us to be with the world around us, to be incarnational in the very same way that Jesus came to be incarnate with us. And so today we're going to look at with from a different perspective as we relate it to uh, the way we respond to God, the God who comes to be with us, what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? And then next week, we're going to look at that final word, us. And I just want to say a quick word about that. If you have friends and neighbors, people that you've been connected with that you think, man, it would be really good for them to experience the, the love of Jesus. I'd love for them to hear that message. Next week is a great time to invite them to come and be a part of that. Um, every week's great. We would love to have them come at any point. But next week specifically, we're going to talk about the idea that the gospel is for us, that Jesus came to be with us. And of course, us is not just us in this room. It's humanity, God coming with love for us. And so it's going to be a great time to be able to hear that truth. And so um, Christianity is an invitational religion. You know, when people came to Jesus and asked him questions, he constantly said things like, come and see. Come follow me. Come and be a part of this. And so while invitation is not the only way to reach out to people, it is one of the key ways to do that. And so I want to encourage you to step into that. The statistics are just off the chart. Um, between 70 and 80% of people who don't regularly go to church say they would come to church if somebody that they knew invited them to come with them. That's pretty wild, 70 to 80%. There's a lot of people just waiting to say yes to your invitation. And so invite them to come. Invite them to come and be a part, and uh, let's journey together through this, uh, this season. Well, um, as we think about this idea of Emmanuel, we're going to go literally to the beginning of the New Testament. Emmanuel is really the, the beginning point of the entire revelation of the New Testament. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 is where that prophecy is cited of Emmanuel, God with us. And so I'm going to ask Josiah to come, and he is going to read for us uh, from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Listen to the word of the Lord. So the reading is from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So I want to start with just a really simple question. How would you respond? I don't necessarily mean if you were engaged to a woman who was found to be pregnant and you know that it's not your child. That's a very complicated situation, of course. I mean, how would you respond if God showed up right in front of you? Because that's that's a real thing for us. I'm not talking necessarily about an angel at the foot of your bed, although that's a great way to imagine it. How do you respond when God shows up? Because God shows up in all kinds of different ways. When God shows up for us in the midst of a worship gathering and we have a sense of the presence of the Spirit, how do you respond? When you're quietly engaging the Word and prayer and suddenly you recognize that you're not just reading, but there's a, there's a presence with you, that God is with you, how do you respond? When you're in the midst of a conversation and you recognize that that conversation has gone from a back and forth to a holy moment and God is speaking, how do you respond? Most of us have a subconscious response to the presence of God. We have an idea of who God is, and when that God shows up, when we have the sense of God's presence, we respond in a certain way, and that's a subconscious response that's not always the best response. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the typical responses that we tend to have, the responses that uh, just kind of come out of us and uh, try to tear those apart in a way to try to understand why we respond the way that we do. And then I want to look at a gospel response. How did Joseph respond, and why was that the right way to respond? And then finally, our response. As we hear Joseph's response, and as we see what that looks like, what are we called to do as we live in the world? So that's where we're going to go. Typical responses, a gospel response, and our response. And so we're actually going to use, for typical responses, I'm going to use a framework that uh, was developed by a pastor named Sky Jatani. Sky Jatani is a, a Christian Missionary Alliance pastor, and he wrote a book simply titled With... And in that book, he talked about four ways that we tend to respond. So I'm going to lean kind of heavily into his framework as we walk through this. So when God shows up in front of you, how do you respond? Some people respond with uh, what Sky says is an over-God response. This would be the secularist response. I, I don't mean secular meaning apart from faith in Christ. I mean a secularist kind of faith in Jesus. Let, let me try to explain that. Um, th- there are times where we tend to look for specific principles in the way we relate to God. So God shows up and we immediately start to think through what just happened, how did it happen, how can I make it happen again, and how, how am I going to benefit from this thing? What's the system that's there? Um, the, the way that this is talked about in a big picture is the idea of God as what's called the divine watchmaker. He's kind of put everything into place, there's a system that's out there, and we just learn to engage that system. So this is the kind of thing where you, um, you, you recognize, man, I had a powerful experience with God today, it was a great day and I just felt like God was close with me all day 
And you know what? When I think about it, I read that one devotional this morning, and then I listened to a worship song on the way into work. I bet if I read that devotional every morning and listened to that same worship song on the way into work, I would always have that same encounter with God, right? Or like I got up this morning and I was late and I was grumpy and I yelled at the kids and then I got in the car and drove to work and got a flat tire. I bet that was God punishing me. So if I do, see, that's, that's the systems, right? So Biblically, um, Moses, uh, we didn't get there yet in Exodus, we'll get there in a couple months, but Moses is leading his people, and the people of God say, Moses, we need water, there's no water out here. So Moses goes to God, and he says, God, but people need water, what am I supposed to do? And God says, right there's a rock, take the staff, and hit the rock, and water's going to come out of the rock. So Moses says, okay, good plan. Goes over, hits the rock, water comes out of the rock, everybody drinks, everybody's happy. Great. Well, a couple years later, same thing happens. People come to Moses. Moses, we need water. Moses goes to God. God, the people need water. And God says to Moses, see that rock over there? Speak to the rock. And what's Moses do? He takes a staff. He walks over and he hits the rock twice. Nobody, I don't know why, but he hits it twice. Why do you do that? Well, he did because there's a principle, right? I, I know what happened before. I understand the way God works. Therefore, I'm going to do it the same way again, and I'm going to get the same result. I don't need God to be involved in the process because I know the principle. That's why he hit the rock, because he didn't listen to God. Because he didn't actually care what God had to say. He just wanted to get the water. And fascinatingly, we'll get there in a couple months, the water did come out, and God did provide anyway, which happens at times, which confuses all of our systems, right, when uh, when we stop listening. There was a book out, uh, man, probably 15 years ago now, uh, called Jesus CEO. It was a super popular book on management and management structures written by a lady named Lori Beth Jones. Listen to the way that she unpacks that principle. She says this, anyone who practices these spiritual principles is bound to experience success. In fact, the study and application of spiritual principles comes with success guaranteed. How about that? Like success guaranteed, that's what I'm looking for, right? She's saying, if you just boil the Bible down to the principles, if you just understand the way that God set the world in motion, you're guaranteed success and you don't really need God. Like, who needs to be in relationship with God? That's messy and confusing. Like, it's hard, he's hard to hear. But as long as you get the principle, that's all that you really need. This is life over God. This is what Pastor Mark Sayers calls the kingdom without the king. Like, I I want all the kingdom principles. I want it to be good and glorious and wonderful and happy, but I don't really need Jesus there. Like, I just want the the benefits of Jesus without the work of Jesus. That's life over God. So one approach, God shows up, and we try to understand the principles. We put ourselves over God. The, The next way would be life under God. If life over God is secular, life under God is religious. The idea here is that we try to behave. We try to live in moral, appropriate, upright ways in order to control the blessing of God. If I just behave, if I just do the things that I'm supposed to do and don't do the things I'm not supposed to do, God can't help but to bless me. I'm going to make him right? And we love this as religious people. We love this because it's very controllable. It's really neat. Like I can manage it. If I'm, if I'm good, then God's good to me. 
And if I'm not good, then God's not good to me. It's a really simple thing to, to do. Um, in the Bible, the prototypical people who do this are the Pharisees. Now, we give the Pharisees a hard time because Jesus was pretty hard on the Pharisees. But let's just be real. If you were alive in Jesus' time, you'd probably be a Pharisee. That's just the way it goes. If you come to church on a Sunday morning, you probably would have been a Pharisee. That's the way it works. Pharisees were, were good people who had good intentions. Their intention was they looked back at Israel, they looked back at the history of Israel, and they said, over the course of the history of Israel, there were times where we were in charge and we were, uh, we, we were ruling ourselves, we were blessed. And there were other times where we were oppressed by outside rulers. And, and we can chart that because in Deuteronomy, the promise of God is when we behave, when we're moral, when we do the things we're supposed to, when we follow God, we'll be blessed. But when we don't follow God, we'll be cursed, we'll be oppressed. And so um, historically, the Pharisees in Jesus' day are coming out of a period of time in between the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire when Israel had its own king and ruled for a period of time. And then the Romans came in and just like steamrolled everything, and it was crushing to them. And so they, the Pharisees then kind of arose as this sect within, uh, within Judaism, and they said, here's the deal. We're going to obey. We're going to do good. We're going to do the stuff we're supposed to do, and we're going to follow all the rules. In fact, just to make sure we follow all the rules, we're not just going to follow the normal rules. We're going to take the temple rules, the strictest rules, and we're going to take all of those holiness guidelines and all the rules that God's put in place. We're going to make them for everybody. So now instead of the temple being a holy place, every home is going to be like a temple, and every father is going to be like a priest. And every table is going to be like an altar. So everybody now has to follow all of those rules. And so what they did is they put all these rules into place um, that would uh, kind of bring it in closer and closer and closer to perfection so that even if they broke the rule, they wouldn't break the law of God. So imagine, like, if I, if I want to fence in my backyard so the dog can't get out, and I think, well, if I let the dog out and he gets through the fence, he's going to be out. So what I could do is I could fence, but then I could put another fence inside the fence. And then if he got out of that, he'd have to get out of the other fence. But that's still too, maybe I'll get another fence inside the fence, inside the fence. And then if I let the dog out to that, then the dog will never get out, right? That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were building the fences in closer and closer and closer. And because they figured if you break our rule, you still wouldn't break the law. And if we can get everybody in Israel to live inside these fences, God will have to bless us. The, the idea of life under God is that we will force God to bless us through our behavior. But see, here's the thing. Your morality cannot control God. You can't do it. God is not manipulated by your good or bad behavior. But that's life under God, the religious response. Another response when God shows up is life from God. The idea of life from God is basically saying, uh, God loves me, and therefore, I should be blessed. I should have a good and a prosperous life because God loves me. And of course, he's going to give me everything that I need. What we, what we begin to do is form God and the blessings of God into our own image, into the things that we want and desire so that we can see the blessing of God. So um, Professor Scott McKnight uh, teaches at North Park Seminary outside of Chicago. Uh, every year, he teaches a seminary-level class on Jesus. And the first thing he does with his seminary-level students is he gives them a 24-question test about 
who Jesus is. But it's not like the Bible questions, not like what was Jesus' first miracle or who were his disciples or those kinds of things. It's um, personality kind of questions. Is Jesus quiet or was Jesus loud? Did Jesus like to be with people or did he like to be alone? Uh, how did Jesus react when he had these kinds of situations? And he would give them all these personality type questions about Jesus. And then a little bit later in that same class, he would give them 24 questions about them. And they were personality kind of questions. Are you quiet or loud? Do you like to be alone or do you like to be with other people? How do you respond in all these different situations? And what he found is like 90 some percent of students make Jesus look just like them. Jesus is exactly like they are. Jesus has been forced into their image. We think of idolatry as something that happened thousands of years ago when people used to worship little statues. But idolatry is actually rampant in our world today. Tim Keller defines idolatry as taking something good and making it ultimate. And we do that all the time. Life from God is saying, I want this good thing and I want it so badly that God is the means to get that good thing that I want. Life is from God when God is the means to the treasure, not himself the treasure. And that's the challenge that we run into. Uh, John Piper, I think, says this as clearly as anybody listen to the way that Piper says it. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. The heart of life from God is saying, I just want the blessing. I don't really need him. I just want the good stuff. But God calls us back to him. And that sometimes means the difficulties and the challenges of life. Life from God. The fourth response that is very typical for us is not life over God. That's a secularist response. Not life under God. That is the religious response. Not life from God. We could call that the consumerist response. But life for God. We'll call that the activist response. And the idea here is that God is so lucky to have me because I'm so incredibly gifted, I can do really great things for him. I don't really know what he would do if it wasn't for me doing things in his kingdom, right? You ever thought that way? Even subconsciously, we're like down inside the, the, the activist, kind of the core verse for the activist is the word from Jesus' parable where he says, to whom much is given, much is expected. Maybe you've heard that, that word before from Jesus. The problem is that verse from Jesus is embedded in a parable that's all about grace. And apart from the grace that's within that parable, that word is a, a weight that we cannot bear. Here's what I mean. If you have grown up and lived with that truth, for, to him whom much is given, much is expected, you will constantly be striving for more and feeling like you're missing it. You can never on your own live up to that. Or you've gone the other way around where your, your vision of yourself has gotten so low you couldn't even be, see yourself made in the image of God because that you, you feel like you're not giving anything and so therefore you must not be anything. 
Our relationship with God is grounded in grace, but life for God is about doing all kinds of wonderful things on his behalf because the kingdom is moving forward because of me. I have people who come to me sometimes, talk about friends that they're uh, loving towards Jesus, and they'll say something like, oh man, he'd be so great as a Christian. Like He's got so many gifts and so much ability, and they have all these resources. God could really use a guy like him. And I want to think like, because God really needs gifts and resources and money and personality, right? Like, like he doesn't have enough of that on his own. Like, we have this mindset that's so, like, earthly that just says, like, wow, I can really be impressive within the kingdom. Gordon MacDonald calls this missionalism. Uh, he defines it this way. Missionalism is the belief that the worth of one's life is determined by the achievement of a grand objective, like, I'm, I'm so concerned my worth is determined by how well I act for God. The problem is, when I'm living life for God, the focus is actually still on me. It's on how great I am or how great I'm not. But it's not on God. In fact, that's the problem with each one of these. Life over God is all about the principle, not about God himself. Life under God is all about my behavior not about God himself. Life from God is all about the blessing. It's not about God himself. And life for God is all about what I do or what I achieve, but it's no longer about God himself. These four responses are natural for us. When we, when we come to God, when God shows up in our lives, most, most of us subconsciously respond that way. And most of the people that you encounter in your normal life respond to the idea of God in one of these four ways. How are we supposed to respond? Well, look at the way that Joseph responds. The angel shows up and says to him, this is verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew tells us the thoughts of Joseph as he kind of puts this into perspective. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Not God over us, not God under us, not God from us, not God for us, but God with us. And Joseph, as a first century Jew who was grounded in the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures and the prophets, who would have had a deep understand, a rich understanding of the scriptures, he would have placed this within a broad uh, redemptive history, which we get lost in often because we're just not Bible scholars in the way that they were in that day. So I'm going to try to just walk us through from Genesis to Malachi really, really quickly. I'm literally picking one out of every 10 of the verses that I could be pulling. We could do this all day. I'm just going to hit the highlights. They're going to be on the screen so we can go really fast. Don't worry, we'll move right through. But when Joseph hears this, first he's going to be thinking about Adam and Eve in the garden. He's going to be thinking about the fact that God created man and woman so he could be with them, that he could be coming and just hanging out with them. 
And of course, that's broken in Genesis 3 by sin. And so when God shows up in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, his promise to Abraham is, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing in the world. And that's reiterated with Isaac and again with Jacob. The promise is over and over again, I'm going to be with you. So in Genesis chapter 28, God's speaking to uh, Jacob, and he says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now we looked centuries later at Moses when God came to Moses. What Moses, what he said to Moses again and again and again is, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. And when Moses takes the people out of the promised land, there's this confrontation he has with God up on the mountain. This is after the rebellion of the people and the golden calf and all kinds of stuff. If you're not familiar with that, we're going to get there in a couple months. Um, But in this encounter with God, what, what Moses says to God is, I need you to go with us. I don't need you to fix it. I don't need you to be powerful. I don't need you to conquer people. I need you to go with us because it's your presence that defines us as your people. And so in Exodus 33, this is the promise of God. My presence will go with you. Not my power, not my ability, not my, the fire going in front of you. My presence will go with you. That's what you need, Moses. My presence will go with you. As the people of God are wandering, God is speaking to them. Deuteronomy is kind of the retelling of the law and the covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, there's this promise of God to people as they're going to the people as they're going into the promised land. He says, "Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, the inhabitants of the promised land, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you." From there, they move into the promised land and Joshua is called in place of Moses. And that same promise in Joshua 1 is reiterated. So in Joshua 1, it says this, as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. This is what you need to know, Joshua. I'm going to be present with you. As they moved through the promised land, they began to inhabit the promised land. And if you're familiar with the history of Israel, it moved into a period of the judges. And in the judges, different people rose to power at different times. One of those judges was a guy named Gideon. Gideon felt uh, very insecure within his role as a judge. He said, like, I don't know. I just can't do this stuff. I don't know what you're, uh, why you would think I could do this. And so in uh, Judges chapter 6, this is the interchange that Gideon has with God. Uh, He that's Gideon said to God, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. He didn't say to Gideon, don't worry, man, you're good. I got you. Like, you're, like, you're, you're great. Just like, keep moving. Like, find the inner you. He's not saying any of that. He says, yeah, you really are the weakest. Like, your, your clan is messed up, and you're really bad. But don't worry, I'm coming. That's what you need to know. I will be with you. So uh, the judges, period of the judges, gave way to the period of the kings. And of all of the kings, David was the greatest king, known as a man after God's own heart. And at the end of David's life, he wanted to build a temple for God. And if you know the story, he comes before God with his request, and God said, "Um, there's blood on your hands because of what I've called you to do throughout your lifetime. I'm not going to let you build the temple. It's your son that's going to build the temple. But in that process, in that discussion, he comes back to David, and uh, he says to David, I've been walking with you. Listen to the way that he says it. This is in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I think it is. 
There we go. He says, I have been with you wherever you went. My presence has been right beside you. As you've gone through all these things that I've called you into, my presence has been with you. And it's actually out of that uh, idea that David wrote so many of the Psalms, but one of uh, the most famous ones, uh, one of the ones that you maybe go back to on a regular basis is Psalm 23, one of the most famous Psalms. And it says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Not because you're really powerful, not because I know I'm going to be okay, not because I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I will fear no evil because you are with me. It's the heart of David through Psalm 23. The prophets uh, in Haggai, or I'm sorry, in, uh, in uh, Isaiah, Isaiah is often known as the fifth gospel because there's so much of Jesus in Isaiah, so much of the revelation of Jesus in the book of Isaiah. Um, as Isaiah's writing, he's promising the people of God what will come. In Isaiah 41, he says this, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'm with you. A couple chapters later, he's going to reiterate that promise and go a little bit farther. In Isaiah 43, it says this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. The prophet Haggai, as he's speaking to the people of God, he has a concise and uh, very um, sharp and clear message for the people. This is in Haggai chapter 1. It says this, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. That's all you need to know. I'm with you. That's it. That's the most important message I can give you. I am with you, declares the Lord. And as we get to the end of the Old Testament, we get to the book of Malachi. And although Malachi doesn't use these specific words, that idea of the presence of God being promised is throughout. But I want to look specifically at the promise of Malachi chapter 3. In Malachi 3.1, it says this, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is the hope that Joseph is looking towards, this idea that the God who has throughout the Old Testament said he's with his people is going to show up. He's going to be present. The right response is not that we would see ourselves over or under God, getting things from God or doing things for God, but recognizing that God has come to be with us and we're invited to be with him. That's it. In fact, the end of the story is really simple. Alex read it to us last week. The dwelling place of God is with man. That's the heart of what God wants. We, we tend to come to God through our North American mindset. We want to do something. We want to get something. But what God invites us into is just to rest, just to be with him. Listen to the way that uh, Sky Jatani says it in his book. Life under, over, from, and for God, each seeks to use God to achieve some other goal. God is seen as a means to an end. Life with God is different because its goal is not to use God, its goal is God. God ceases to be how we acquire our treasure, and he becomes our treasure. So the angel shows up to Joseph. He says, the baby that Mary's going to have is from the Holy Spirit. This is the promise, God with us. 
And Joseph does not say, can you explain to me scientifically how that virgin's going to have a baby? Because I'm not sure I understand that. But it would really help me if I could understand what was going on, right? He's not, not looking for a principle. He doesn't say to the angel, did I do something wrong or did I do something right to get this? I'm not sure which way this goes. Like, um, do I need to behave differently or better? Or like, what? He's, it's not morality, right? He's not saying, okay, so uh, look, angel dude, um, this is going to be a tough journey that you're going to have me walk on. I better get some blessing at the back end of this, right? There better be a big payday on the backside. doesn't say that, right? And he doesn't even say, like, doesn't like pull up his chest and say, all right, God, I know you need me now, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to step into this thing. I'm going to take care of this for you, right? None of that. What's Joseph say? Okay, I'll receive that. That's it. What we're invited to do as the people of God at Christmas is to rejoice in the God who just wants to be with us. He doesn't want anything from you. He doesn't love a future version of you that you're someday going to achieve. He's not looking to give you something other than him because he's enough. He's not asking you to perform not asking you to figure him out. He just wants to be with you. And so how do we respond to that? Because, like, we want to do something, right? Like, there's this, this part of us that says, like, yeah, but I, I, I want to I jump into it. Well, see, here's the thing. The, the people around you, um, quite literally right now, but especially I'm talking about the people in the world around you, whether uh, your workplace or your neighborhood or in your family, the vast majority of us respond to God in one of those first four ways. We have a vision of God that says, I need to figure him out, I need to behave, I need to uh, get from him, or I need to act for him. We have some version of God that requires something of us. And the good news of the gospel is that Emmanuel is God who's just come to be with us. That's it. And so that message is one that people need to hear. That message is the heart of the good news. But here's the thing, you can't speak that you can't radiate that unless you first live that. We need to take time to just be with him. And then, being with him, what happens is the natural outflow of a life with God is we become what the Bible calls witnesses. Now, we see witness as a, a verb that means we're going to have to go out and uh, do something. But what God, said, what God calls a witness is just somebody who is speaking out of their experience, like this is just the way life has been for me. So let me, let me show you uh, an example of this. Go to John chapter one. We're gonna do a little um, reading exercise. Um, I did this with uh, some of you, man, a long time ago, eight or 10 years ago. Um, and, and I think it's a really helpful way to look at what is a really dense passage in John chapter one. So John, John one is this beautiful poetic retelling of the incarnation. We pulled a couple sections of those in uh, corporate worship earlier and spoke those over one another. What we're going to do is I'm going to read you a section. And as an exercise, I want you to tell me who is the subject matter. So, um, so if this was English class, who's the subject of that sentence or that paragraph or whatever it is, okay? So that's going to require you to say it out loud. I know this is church, but I'm going to ask you to talk back to me along the way here. So I'm going to say, who's he talking about? And you're going to tell me the answer to the question. And just as a hint, the answer to every question isn't Jesus. I know this is church, but um, there's, there's other answers to the question. So li listen um, as I read verses 1 to 5 first. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, who's he talking about? Jesus. Yeah, you got that one right. So now the church people feel comfortable. Now it's going to get tricky, but the church people feel good. Yeah, that's about Jesus. Now listen, this is verse six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Who's he talking about? John the Baptist. Right. So John now is the, the new subject, but now we go to verse Uh, Nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who's the subject? Jesus. So we're back to, so we went from Jesus and went to John. Now I went back to Jesus again. Now listen to verse uh, 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John's talking about Jesus, but who's the subject? John. So we went back to John again. So we went Jesus, John, Jesus, John. Now we're in verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Who's the subject? Jesus. Yeah, you're getting, you're getting less confident because it's getting a little bit more dense. But yes, that's, that's Jesus again. That's Jesus again. Now, verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Who's that about? John. All right. I don't know if you ever took a writing class. I took a writing class at one point in time. And if I had turned in that paper, right, <laughs> Red ink everywhere. Like, are you kidding me? Like, you can't do that. Like, that's bad writing. Like, you go from Jesus to John to Jesus to John. Like, make a point and then move on to the next point. You can't just go back and forth. It's so confusing for the reader. So what's going on? Like, is John a bad writer? Does the Holy Spirit have the hiccups? Like, what's going on here? Like, I don't understand what's happening. What's happening is John is placing this beautiful description of Jesus coming into the world in the context of the Old Testament narrative. Think about the way that God has worked. Genesis chapter 12. God wants to bring blessing to the world. Does he just show up with blessing? No. He calls Abraham, an idolater, by the way, and says, you're going to be the conduit of blessing. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. He decides he's going to save his people from uh, oppression and slavery. So he's going to have to go talk to Pharaoh. Does he go talk to Pharaoh? No, he calls Moses. The stuttering murderer, right? Moses is like, I, but I do, yeah, you go, you go, right? Like you're, you're the one, you're the one I chose. Moses becomes the voice box. You fast forward a bit, uh, you have uh, the boy Samuel. Eli, who's the high priest, has a corrupt family. And God, who actually speaks to the high priest on a regular basis, does not talk right to Eli. He talks to Samuel. And Samuel goes to Eli. Samuel ultimately becomes the voice box for God for all of Israel. You remember that beautiful scene in Isaiah chapter 6 of the throne room of God, the holiness of God. And at the end of that scene, God says, 
What? Look how holy and amazing I am? He could say that. He's God. He's allowed to say that. What's he say? I, I'm looking for someone to go for me. And Isaiah, the plain average Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. So when John shows up in the middle of the Jesus narrative, this is not like some confusing bad writing. This is John through the power of the Holy Spirit reminding us God has always worked by sending a person. And so you see it right there in verse 8. He, John, was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John himself gets it. If you go down to verse 23, he's going to quote the prophet and he says, "Um, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Like John got it. He says, uh, my role is to be the voice. I'm a witness to the light. That's my job. I'm not the light. I'm a witness to the light. So, so I want to give you some important but bad news. It's Christmas, so just brace yourself. Um, you're all going to die. Merry Christmas. I ho- hope you're really happy to know that. But, but see, here's the thing. Like when you look historically, I can say with pretty relative certainty, you're going to die because death is pretty well undefeated. I mean, there was that one guy 2,000 years ago who had a big comeback in overtime. But other than that, uh, undefeated, right? Like, <laughs> think it's, never mind. (laughs) You're going to die, and so am I. And and York Alliance at some point is either going to be a pile of rubble or a strip mall or something. I don't know. I don't know which way it's going to go. If we're a strip mall, I hope we get the high-end stores. That would be kind of cool. But (laughs) that's what happens to churches, right? It's the life cycle of of churches. They just, they become something else. A dance studio. I don't know what we're going to be. Something. Like, at some point in time, we're going to cease to exist. Like, if we're going to do a survey right now, I can almost guarantee you that no one here can name their great-great-great-grandparents. Like, there's some of you who are Ancestry.com gurus, and you maybe got a couple, but most of you can't. And see, that's a reminder to you, you're three generations away from being completely forgotten. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Like, nobody's going to know who you are. So what do we do with that? Because so many of us, we want to do something. But you're going to die, and York Alliance is going to fall apart. It's become nothing. Over time, the freedom that you have to share the gospel in the world, that's going to change. That ha- if you look historically, it goes in cycles. There's times where we have freedom. There's times we don't have freedom. Oppression will come sooner or later. Maybe it's in your lifetime or the next lifetime. It's going to come. Poverty and wealth cycles. Like right now, you may live in relative comfort, but at some point in time, that may not be the case anymore. But you know what will always be true? The light will continue to shine. The light is going to keep shining. Whether you're here to shine it or not, the light's going to shine. So if we were going to have something written about us, all that stuff that we want to go do, it's all going to fall apart. But a great testimony, a great testimony would be something like this. There was a man sent from God His name was Brian. He wasn't the light, but he was a witness to the light. Wouldn't you want that written about you? There was a woman sent from God. Her name was Karen. And she wasn't the light, but she was a witness to the light. There was a woman from God named Pam. There was a man from God named Morgan. And we're not the light. And that's good because we're really broken and messed up. 
But when we spend time with God, we have the natural reaction of reflecting his light to the world. And some of you hear that and you think, like, I don't know if I can be a witness. Like, that sounds like hard work. Yeah, but when you have a great meal, you love to talk about it. And when you watch a great movie, you love to tell other people about it. It's the same. If you learned to be with God, you would naturally tell other people about it. The problem is most of us are either uh, over God or under God or for God or from God. But as we spend time with him, the natural outflow of our life is simply to be a witness. We are not the light, but we give testimony to the light. So I want to give you a really simple assignment this week. It's not hard. It's not, every one of you can do it. Yet today, you can do it. Here's what I want you to do. Two or three minutes. You can go longer if you want, but two or three minutes. I want you to just be with God. Put your Bible to the side and put your prayer journal to the side and put all of the stuff that you want to do to the side and just rest with him. And remember that of all of the messages of Christmas, one of the big ones is that God just wants to be with you. He's come to just cuddle up beside you. And so that may be in the quiet of the morning when nothing's awake around you yet and you're just sitting there in his presence and you just feel being with him. It may be late at night where you kind of cuddle up in the corner of a couch and put a blanket over top of you and just feel the presence of God with you. But just take a couple minutes every day this week Just be with him. If you're truly with him, what you will find is you are reflecting the light. The the light will continue to shine. And you'll be a witness just because he does that through us. Not because you had to work at it. Not because God really needs you. But just because he loves you. And he loves to be with you. So I'm going to ask us to respond by just being with him. Really simple. Not a very North American response because you don't have something to check off your list. But, but I want to invite you just to be with him. And so we're just going to be quiet for a minute. And the team's going to come. And we're just going to take a moment with him as kind of a precursor to time this week where you get to be with him. And then we're going to respond in singing and uh, remember the God who desires to be with us. And so just quiet your hearts. Put your stuff over to the side and uh, just place yourself in his presence. Jesus, we are so thankful to be your kids. Just, just, just revel in the fact that you desire to be with us. I love the fact that there's the babble of little babies because it's, it's in the middle of that that you remind us that's what we are. We're just coming as your little kids. We just get to crawl up on your lap and be with you. And you get to come and be with us. And so Jesus, thank you for your heart desire that you want to be with us. That foretaste of Revelation 21, that the dwelling place of God is with man. And so God, for those of us who hear witness and uh, our, our, our um, anxiety spikes and we just think, I, I couldn't possibly do that. God, can you just come and meet us? 
and remind us of the deep love that you have for us and the fact that you're not calling us to do anything other than be with you and out of being with you, a natural outflow of conversation will happen. God, there's some of us who, if we're totally honest, we feel like we don't deserve to have you with us. And so that becomes a barrier. And the difficult reality is we don't deserve it. And yet, you came to die as the sacrifice for our sins so that we could be with you. The, the heart of the gospel is that you broke down every barrier to bring us to you. So God, help us to come recognizing that you don't love some other version of us, that you love us right where we are in the midst of our brokenness. And you've come to be with us. And God, there's some of us who so desperately want to perform. We want to do something. We want to achieve something. We want to go to battle. And God, would you just give us the perspective to remember that all of that is going to pass away? We're a couple generations from all of the greatest achievements being forgotten. But the light will continue to shine. So would you meet us as the light shine into our hearts and help us to settle, just be with you.